This is Liz Ryan, and this is the Truth About Work podcast, episode 34. We're talking about work, what's great about it, what's broken about it, how to fix what's broken, how to grow your flame, either at work or just in your life or as a leader, as an entrepreneur, whatever you're working on. And just to remind you that you have a flame when it can seem like it's almost snuffed out at times and we don't get a lot of affirmation or validation or reinforcement, I want to tell you that uh, that's not you. It's not you. There is a system we're living in it that crunches us down and, and, and dims our flame all the time. And we got to band together to fight against that, that bad energy. That's one big reason why we're here on the podcast, The Truth About Work. I'm going to do three things in the podcast today, answer a couple of questions. I'm going to do a little unbrainwashing. I hope we, we've all been brainwashed really badly with a lot of topics about work and adulthood and the grown-up world. And, and, and so now we can collectively kind of shake off that brainwashing and say, wow, that really never made sense. Glad I figured that out. And then I'm going to tell you a little bit of the story, me and the human workplace movement, how all this stuff got started, how I got interested in work as a topic etc. But first I'm going to answer a question and the question is, I'm going to read it because it's a, uh, it's a tweet. It's on Twitter. Let me just find it. I'll get it verbatim. See what, see what we want to talk about here. La la la. Here's the tweet that I will read to you. La, 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 la. Hi, Liz. So I guess right up until the day I give notice, there's no need to tell my boss how her horrible management style is pushing me out the door, right? Because I'm not going to change her. That right there, you guys, is a really wonderful aha that says, yeah, what am I pushing against a rock for? Why am I pushing a rock uphill? I'm not going to change this woman. Right? Maybe I've changed her in some way through my presence in her life. That's fine. But I'm not going to worry about my job or my role or my responsibility in changing her. That, that's, a, that's not my mission. So here's what I said. You don't have to make a decision about that right now, about whether or not to speak to her, about her, your difficulties with her style. You, you wouldn't even necessarily be in control if you did say something. It would probably just pop out of your mouth because you'd be empowered or frustrated or frustrated and empowered or whatever. Here's what I said. Start your stealth job search. You are likely to find that as you start interviewing with other firms, your confidence grows. You are likely to share some truth with her, your boss, even when you're not planning to. She is likely to pick up on the energetic shift without even necessarily putting two and two together to realize your job hunting. She's going to pick up as your confidence grows, your flame grows. She's going to be able to tell whether she intellectually gets that or not. She's an animal. We're all animals, right? She'll know something's different and she might start treating you better. This is a very, very, very common phenomenon. You start job hunting, interviewing with other companies when they're smart, when they're switched on, which is obviously not all the time, but when it is, it's really good for you. And people get kind of quasi-addicted to it. They say, I like interviewing. I don't want to take a job. I like interviewing and, and talking with smart people about stuff that's going on in their business. That's really affirming for me. It's often more affirming than actually doing your existing job. 
So anyway, your boss may treat you better, and she may even offer you a raise or a better job or some kind of perk, but it'll be too late. Because at that point, you'll say, wait a minute, I've done my time under this woman. There's so much bigger world out there. There's so much to learn, so much to try. I'm not a fan of counteroffers, you guys, as I may have mentioned in the past, except in very, very specific situations. These guys had their chance. If you put in the time and energy to start looking, there was a good reason why. Nobody does that lightly or blithely, okay? without thinking about it a lot. I don't want you to be somebody that they can reel back in by giving you a couple of thousand bucks or even a bigger sum. That's ick. That's not your flame. That is not your power. So I say by then it'll be too late. Many people start job hunting when they realize it is not their mission in life to reform their current boss. Their missions and yours are much bigger than that. By the time you make that investment and you start job hunting, you're like, wow, why did I care about that lady? The thing is that she will recede in your rearview mirror the minute you give notice, the minute you leave that job. If you give notice, I hope you can give notice, but it's not safe everywhere to give notice anymore, sad to say. You might not give notice. You might say today well, actually was my last day and it's over and thank you and I'm out of here. Right? So... Yeah, but it's not your job. It is not your job to reform this lady or to get her to see any kind of a light. That is almost impossible to do from below as a subordinate of hers in a hierarchical system. That is like, you know, and any change that you might see, any advancement, any, any glint of light coming in that you might perceive, it, it's not likely to last Right? She's in fear. The lady is in fear. That's what makes people act all crazy at work, especially supervisors. She's afraid of the guys above her. I mean, that is a unisex term, the people that she works for. So, you know, you don't have the ability to assuage that fear because you cannot assure her that, no, it's okay, you're not in trouble or you won't get fired or whatever like that. You, you know, you can't do that. That actually reminds me of a conversation that I had with a CEO who said, um, so Liz, can you help me? I have a problem in my company around people and I thought you might be able to help. Oh, well, maybe I can. Tell me more about it. Well, you know, the people are making mistakes. I'm not sure if it's a training issue or a, a hiring issue. And I said, well, did this come up recently? Is this something new? Eh, over the last year, over the last year, it's been a real issue in our business. People uh, not trained properly or else we're recruiting the wrong people. So I said, okay, look, I understand you're a CEO. You have a certain personality type that CEOs tend to have. You want to, you want to get analytical. You want to dig down. You want to say, this is the problem, problem a, you know, could be cause a training problem or cause B a hiring problem. I, if you wanted me to get involved would, immediately look at that. I'm not sure it's a training problem or a recruiting problem. In my experience, you know, why? Did your training pro program just fall apart all of a sudden somehow? Or you, your recruiting program just stopped giving you the good results it gave you before? That's super fishy. It's more likely a cultural issue, a leadership issue. Why do you say that? Because A, logic, and B, 
if it were a training problem, people would know that their training were not sufficient to help them not make mistakes, and they would be talking about that. And if it were a recruiting problem, they would then your biggest problem would be recruiting and not the mistakes that people make when they're when they show up. You would be saying, "Wow, we're not able to get the right people." You're not feeling it as a recruiting problem. You're not complaining about the recruiting aspect, but you're saying. People make mistakes, therefore I suspect it's a recruiting problem. So what's going on in this in this situation, you guys? This CEO, God bless him, doesn't want to say we might have leadership problems, we might have cultural problems, just like most CEOs don't want to talk about that because they feel like it reflects back on them. So I say, okay, so what happens when somebody makes a mistake? Oh, they get coaching, he says. Okay, cool. What does the coaching consist of? Well, a supervisor or team leader sits down with them, talks about the mistake, talks about how to do it right. You know, if they've had the conversation three or four times, it's accelerated or what do you call escalated. Okay, so they're in trouble. Well, I wouldn't call it that. You should call it that, though, because they're in trouble. It feels to them like they're in trouble. Maybe it feels to them like they're in trouble, but I mean, they're not really in trouble. Well, if they could get fired, if it's escalated because you've had the conversation three or four times, then they're obviously in trouble. Do you like getting in trouble, Mr. CEO? Do you like it when the board chair calls you and reams you over something, reads you the riot act? No, but I mean, it's different. No, it's actually not different. This is why, you guys, we got to pull the truck back and look at the business or work ecosystem from a wider gaze, a wider perspective. Fear and trust is really the lens that I have found most helpful. These folks are afraid of making a mistake. And so you're talking about training issues or recruiting issues. No, no. Open up the energy, add to the trust and say, we, I, the CEO feel that I have screwed up by letting some, some damage and some uh, obstacles to trust, some fear creep into the environment that I created and I therefore would like to remove it for you. Having nothing to do with putting people in prom probation or writing them up or getting them in trouble or, or getting people in trouble because the training program isn't good or getting people in trouble because the recruiting system isn't good. Give me a break. The whole, what's broken is what you just said, sir. That is, you know, it's very easy for people to get in trouble while they're working for your company. Although they did nothing wrong, they're responding appropriately to the environment you created. This is the central issue in leadership and management that we're not addressing. And this is another reason why I started the company Human Workplace. Anyway, let's see if we have another question to answer before we go to um, the uh, unbrainwashing. Yeah. Oh, here's a great question. Okay, this is from Sarah. Sarah, Liz, is there anything I can do right in the interview to increase the chance of them calling me back? The most frustrating part of interviewing is when you have a great conversation and then never hear from them again. Genius question, Sarah. Thank you for that. I'm not aware of anything. I, I know, look, <clears throat> I know there's a lot of dogma that in the interview you should say, how long do you think it will take you to make a decision? Pointless. I wouldn't. Or um, do you see any reason why you shouldn't hire me? I absolutely would not do that. All of this kind of kiss-ass stuff that like is supposed to sort of somehow 
solidify your position there. I don't think it works. I actually want you to be more, I don't want to say hard to get, but more solid in yourself, more in your body than to say, do you think I did okay? Um, they're not going to feel committed to anything they say in that room. They're trying to get off the Zoom call and on to their next appointment, right? They have other people to meet. You can't slip a little inception type, you know, thought in their head that is going to get them to say, nobody will beat you out for this job. It just doesn't work that way. And would you want it to? Because you're looking for a resonance between you and that person you're interviewing with that they want to call you, right? What, what control do you really have in that room? Here's the control, Sarah, is that you leave there and you are strong, Sarah, still. You have not changed. You do not need them. The question is, do they need you? And so you're going to send a thank you letter if you like to do that. I recommend it just to stay top of mind. And, you know, you're going to do that. You're going to capture the learning from the interview in your journal. You might talk to a friend about the interview. Do all the stuff you do. Celebrate. Order in some gelato or whatever you give yourself to say, I rock, I rule, I went on this interview and I killed it. Who, we can't control other people. That's the learning. But we control ourselves. So if, if, if you know, they don't get back to you in a couple of days, you'll be on down your path doing something else. And then the longer it stretches on, it better be a more and more appealing offer. And they better have a better and better reason for that delay. But you don't have to think about any of that right now. Preemptively, you can just live your life. It's, it's hard when the bills are real, of course. Not to say, I need this, I need this, but that is exactly the opposite of your power. Sometimes we have to take a job we super don't want just to pay the bills while you th think a little bit, make your next move, and before too long, maybe start interviewing again. The good part about that is that, you know, then you'll have some of the financial pressure off while you're conducting your job search. And here in the United States, you owe your employer absolutely nothing in terms of longevity because they've offered you nothing in terms of job security. Good and bad, right? It would be great if you had a contract that assured your employment or a chunky severance payment in lieu of employment if they went under or something or let you go. But you're not offered that here in the United States unless you have a union job or an individual employment contract. So you owe them nothing just the same way. You can take a job and you can keep job hunting. All right, so unbrainwashing you guys. It occurred to me that we have these very um, deeply rooted ideas and concepts all over the workplace and the topic of work. And we gotta pull them out and talk about them so that we can see where they're faulty and we can get clear on that logically and philosophically, and, and those uh, unearthing those pieces of faulty, damaging dogma, I have found really helpful, and I hope you do too. And today I wanna address one. Um, I got an email from someone who said, my boss likes to say, I wouldn't ask you guys to do anything I wouldn't do. And to her, this is the pinnacle of management leadership excellence. I wouldn't ask you guys to do Anything I wouldn't do. Could you speak to this? Yeah, for sure I will, because this is unbrainwashing. That idea, I wouldn't ask you guys to do anything I wouldn't do myself, is 
not good management. That's not good leadership. And here's why. First of all, your manager sits higher than you do by virtue of being a manager on the organizational chart. And that means the power structure. She may not feel like she's powerful. Most managers don't. But for that matter, most CEOs don't feel very powerful either. Believe it or not, they just don't. Because it was their feeling of needing that formal conferred by others type power that got them to do what they did to become a CEO, whether it was starting their own company, which I did, I'm not hating, right? Or climbing up the ladder in somebody else's company. So that feeling of never enough security in who I am is very big. It's a very big driver in the workplace and obviously it ties right into fear. People do things to reduce their own fear, like like get promoted to management. I'll have more money, I'll be more important. You know, it, I'm not saying it's an evil thing, obviously, right? But we have to see the role of fear in that progression. And so your manager is afraid of what? Her managers. So she's gonna do whatever she has to do to stay in good shape with her managers, even though that is no kind of, uh, of a hedge against the issues that get people in trouble, as we said before, or just plain old laid off and out of a job these days. Like I say all the time, there could be conversations happening in Hong Kong or Des Moines right now that are going to put people out of work next week. And those people haven't done anything wrong. They didn't piss off their manager. They didn't make a mistake that has nothing to do with it. So your manager, when she says, I wouldn't ask you guys to do anything that I wouldn't do is thinking, I, you know, I will do anything though. I will do anything. If she's fearful, she will do anything to keep her job. So you, you know, her not wanting to have you guys work any harder or debase yourselves any more than her is not impressive because she shouldn't even, it's not even on the same playing field. She's getting paid more. She has a higher level position. That's not honorable. That's not any kind of a, of a high mark high watermark in terms of wonderful leadership. I wouldn't ask you guys to do anything. I wouldn't do myself. Yeah, but, but, but we shouldn't be asked to do anything other than what our job requires. And we should be able to have conversations about that. The fact that you might be willing to work all weekend long because maybe you don't have a lot going on in your life outside of work or you desperately don't want these people to be mad at you. We don't feel that way. Right? We are like artisans. We are like people that you call because you need a great bricklayer or stonemason or whatever to build your house or your church or your whatever it is, synagogue or, you know, mosque, ashram, could be a garage. Whatever it is, you called us because you need our services. So let's not have a conversation about what you do versus what we do. That's really messed up right there. Like I'm a good manager because I wouldn't ask you to do anything I wouldn't do. Yeah, but dude, you might, you might be willing to do a lot of stuff that no employee should be asked to do. So that's not a good standard. Good standard is let's figure out what the job requires and how you get to, you know, make your mark on this job and accomplish what you came here to accomplish, learn what you came to learn. And of course have your real life outside of work, the rest of your life outside of work. So yeah, no. Unbrainwashing. This is no kind of, you know, paragon of leadership, uh, wisdom or philosophy to say, I wouldn't ask you guys to do anything I wouldn't do. Eh, eh, nah. So yes, just to finish off the podcast today, I'm going to give you a little snippet, part one of the story, uh, human workplace story. 
that is me um, getting interested in work as a topic, maybe a weird topic to get interested in, but nonetheless I am, I would be at home, of course, with my brothers and sisters as a little kid. I'm number six in the birth order, eight kids, and my dad went to work. It was olden times, as my children would say. My dad went to work. My mom didn't go to work until I was in fourth grade, and then she got a job and went to work, and then they were both gone, and we, you know, kids got home after school if we weren't playing with our friends or whatever, and we would just goof around and do kid stuff and probably mess up the house, and and then our parents would come back. I understood a, more about my mom's job because she, after not working for a long time to have the kids, she went back to work in our town at a university. Well, it's a college, came a university later, and she was in a, the admissions office, admissions. So it's very easy for a little kid to understand. People want to go to this college. Mom and her workmates decide who should go to the college and who shouldn't, and that's it. That's the job. I know there was a lot more to it than that, but as a little kid, I didn't understand. My dad was a sales guy and then became a publisher of a magazine, business magazine. So he got in his car or later got on the bus, on the train, and went to work, and I really had no idea what any of that meant. And I asked him, and he said, in publishing, there's two parts to the job, the writing, the editorial side, and then the advertiser side where you sell advertisements and people pay money to have an ad go in the magazine and then they get to reach all the readers of the magazine. So the editorial side and the advertising side are really tightly linked together and I'm really glad to finally be a publisher after doing all these various sales jobs for years so I can get those two things really you know, tied together and make it a great magazine for the readers and for the advertisers too. And so I sort of kind of understood that. But of course, there was such a thing as a print uh, publishing business back then <laughs> in the 70s. It, it's very drastically changed now. Print advertising has largely died, but, um, but it was a business magazine and it was like a built-in audience. These very specific business topics, people were into it. And so I would go through the magazine with him and say, what did this cost? What did this ad cost? Why did they pay that much? Why didn't they advertise in some other magazine? I wanted to understand how it worked. Not because I thought I would ever be in the business world, which seems really boring with like gray partitions in the office, ew, but because I just wanted to understand how the world worked in general. And I had a very shaky understanding of all of this stuff, which just seemed really boring and abstract until I got jobs myself. I first learned so much of what I ever learned about the working world by babysitting, starting when I was about 13, 12, 13, because I have four older sisters. They gave me all their babysitting jobs. They just passed them on to me when they got tired of babysitting. One at a time. I can't do it this Saturday night. I'm going to send my little sister. The people didn't care. The little kids didn't care. And, um, and then I inherited the clients completely when my sisters went off to college. And I babysat for so many people, like literally 60, 70 families over my years in high school. Just crazy babysitting Saturday, Friday, Thursday uh, to make money. And, and I learned everything about work by babysitting because the parents would talk. 
They would talk to each other and they would talk to me, not to their little kids too much about their jobs, but they talked about their jobs. And this is how I heard about, oh, my boss said this and there's a division meeting and I don't know, it's about the budget. Whoosh. And I saw there is a job that you're supposed to do. A lot of them went to offices, not all. There were actors and producers. I was in a kind of a theatery town, a lot of music people, a lot of journalists, but a lot of them were in offices and I heard out of their lips the politics and the strife and the stress, all of which is baked right in and built right into going to work. But we don't talk about that. We talk about the job description and we talk about the forecast and the plan, but we never talk about why is it so hard? Why is there so much of this blocked people energy? Why is there competition? Why is there politics? And why is it not a topic? And why don't we address the elephant in the room? And I thought, as a 15-year-old babysitter, you will not get me to work in one of these offices. These people are crazy. They are toxic. And then I did. But that's, that's another part of the story. Anyway, you guys... Follow us. Thank you for listening to the podcast and thank you for sending us questions at support at humanworkplace.com. Thanks for following us on Twitter and Facebook. That's Human Workplace and me on LinkedIn, just plain old Liz Ryan. And um, yeah, send us a question or send us an a, a audio or video of you asking a question. We'd love to answer your question if we can. And um, keep growing your flame.